Have you ever lost trust in someone? Maybe you were in business with someone who took the money and ran. Or you had a mentor that you thought was working for you, but later you come to find out was actively sabotaging your career. A boss that manipulated you and your willingness to serve and to learn and instead took advantage of you, or sadly even in our own marriages. Have you lost trust in your husband or wife? A lot of us have lost trust in God. Many of us have had hopes and expectations that were never realized, or we think that God failed us at a particular time and place in our life, and so even though there is still this sense of intellectual belief in God, we can't shake the sense that there is a God, we're not sure what to do with Him because we've lost trust in Him. In movies, there always comes, in, a, in an adventure movie, in an action thriller, there always comes a point where somebody looks at somebody else and says, do you trust me? And it's almost always when they're going like, to jump off a cliff or dive out of a plane or something, right? And if you trust that person, you're going to follow them to the ends of the earth. You're going to do things that you never thought you would do. But when our trust is lost we back away. When our trust is lost, we find that we can't even really function. It's almost like a small hole in a dam. If our trust isn't repaired, then the pressure of the water pushes through that small hole, creating a gaping hole, a catastrophic loss for us. In the same way, unless our trust is restored, we'll find more and more reasons not to trust. Until finally, we have no choice but to turn away and go find someone or something else to trust in. You've heard me say many times as we've gone through this book of Hebrews that the original audience was in danger. They were in danger of returning to Judaism And partly it was because they didn't trust God. They didn't trust that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't trust that he was the final revelation of Abraham's God. Through whom they had their forgiveness of sins and through whom they had access to God. They were spooked. We don't know exactly what the context is, but we can make some general assumptions based on what we know is happening at the, in the early church around this time. Persecution was beginning to ramp up. Conflict in the church can often drive people out of the church. I also tend to think that these early Christians were a lot like you and me. And maybe it was just simply failed expectations, a sense of loss, that this isn't what I thought it was going to be, and that that's part of what created that little hole in the dam. Whatever it was, they had begun to doubt the promises they had once believed, and they were in danger of putting their trust in a religious system that they had left behind. So after warning them about falling away, which is what we looked at last week, 
Our preacher tells them why they should hold on. Our preacher tells them why they should trust in God. And he turns to the example of Abraham, who for the Jews is a prime example of what it means to trust God. We begin in verse 13 by recalling a specific period in Abraham's life that's recorded for us back in Genesis 22. And maybe later today, you can actually even go back to Genesis 22 and remind yourself of this part of Abraham's story. Genesis 22 is the part of Abraham's life where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. You remember that for many years, Abraham didn't even have a son. And then he had Ishmael. And he thought that perhaps Ishmael would be the one through whom God would do this great work that he promised. And God said, no, you and Sarah are going to have a son. And then Isaac was born. And what a time of joy that was in the sense of the fulfillment of God's promise until finally this dark word, this dark command from God to take the son that he had provided to Abraham in his old age and to sacrifice him. And with what had to have been just a sense of deep confusion and despair, Abraham took Isaac up to the top of Mount Moriah, bound him up, laid him on an altar, raised his knife, and was stopped. Stopped by the voice of God and told to direct his eyes to a ram that was caught in the bush who would be the sacrifice instead of Isaac. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 22 and look at verse 17 with me. Actually starting at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The promise is to bless Abraham. Promise is to make his offspring like the sand of the sea, like the stars of the heavens. The promise is to give his descendants victory and triumph over their enemies, to establish their dominion. The promise is to bless all of the nations of the earth through his descendants. Now, these are not new promises. If you're familiar with the story of Abraham, if you were with us during the five falls that we went through the book of Genesis, you'll remember that in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15 and in Genesis chapter 17, God repeats these promises over and over and over again. But the big difference comes in Genesis chapter 22 in verse 15 when God says, by myself I have sworn. I swear by myself to give you these things. He's never said that before. Folks, this is stunning. Humans swear oaths to tell the truth because we are by nature untrustworthy. 
We are liars. And that's why when you go to a court of law, they want you to put your hand on a Bible and swear to tell the truth. God doesn't lie. So why does he need to swear an oath? He does it not to prove his own trustworthiness. He does it because Abraham's faith is weak. God is willing to go to the witness stand and take an oath so that Abraham can be assured of his promises. Back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, or verse 16, tells us that humans swear by something greater than themselves. So if you go to court and you swear an oath in God's name, what you're actually doing is invoking God's judgment on you if you lie. To swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth is to put yourself in a situation where if you're lying, you're asking God to judge you. If you lie in a situation like that, you are mocking God. But what can God swear by? There's nothing greater than God to swear by, so God swears by himself. If you know Abraham's story, if you know how God related to Abraham, what we see in Genesis 22 is a verbal expression of what was illustrated for us in practice in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, remember, Abraham had a vision. He had spent the day taking animals, slaughtering them, splitting them into two to make a bloody pathway. And when he fell asleep, he saw God in the form of a burning lamp pass through those slaughtered animals. And if you remember when we, when we looked at Genesis chapter 15, I told you that God was making a blood oath to Abraham. God was telling Abraham that at the cost of his own life, he would be faithful to Abraham. Now he's saying that again, but in words. I swear by myself. I put myself under my own judgment. If I am not faithful to you. And the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham wasn't just the birth of Isaac. It wasn't just the rescue of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It wasn't just the establishment of the kingdom of David. No, the fulfillment of God's promise was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is why the congregation can't go back to Judaism. There's nothing left in that religious system for God's people. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God made to Abraham. And now, as both Jews and Gentiles look in faith to Jesus Christ, they are brought together as one new people in Christ. That's the heart of what our preacher is trying to communicate to his congregation. But there's something else here that I don't want you to miss. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
For whom did God swear an oath? It was for the heirs of the promise. Was it for Abraham? Yes. But he was looking down through history and saying it's not just Abraham who needs to have his faith strengthened. It's you and me too. We are the heirs of the promise. And generations of believers before us are the heirs of the promise. See, this is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, you are a son of Abraham, an heir of the promise. Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 2. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the oath that God swore to Abraham he swears it also to you. God stoops down to take this oath because he is concerned for you. He wants you to believe his promises. He knows that you will be tempted to doubt his love, to doubt his provision. He knows that with the way that life goes, it is easy for our hope to be taken away from us in the midst of all of the challenges that we face. That's why God swears an oath to you. And that's the application that the preacher is making to his congregation. Again, in verse 17, he says, if I could find verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The unchangeable character of his purpose. Folks, lots of things are going to change in your life. The people who are close to you, you'll go through seasons of life where suddenly all of the friends that you are closest with, they're no longer part of your life. And you're making new friends and you're finding new relationships. The place that you live, the job that you have, the church that you go to. You will also change. If you've done premarital counseling with me, you know that I tell you that you're going to be married to nine different versions of your spouse by the time you finish. We all change. But in the midst of all that change... What will be your sure foundation? On what will you build your life? On what will you stake your confidence? Only God is sure. Only God is unchanging. And that's the whole point of highlighting this episode with Abraham. The same God who fulfills his promises to Abraham will fulfill his promise to you. Our problem to speak very bluntly and frankly, our problem is that we think God promised us things that are actually never mentioned in Scripture. When we suffer, when our hopes and dreams for our life don't come true, when we lose a spouse, when we lose a child, when we get a terminal diagnosis, when the checking account is empty, we're tempted to shake our fist at God. 
to accuse him of not coming through for us, of not being faithful to his promises. But of course, God doesn't promise us those things, does he? He promises to rescue us from our sins. He promises to remake us into the image of Christ. He promises to use you and me in the establishment of his kingdom. When we suffer, we often realize how much we have trusted in the circumstances of our life rather than the Lord and giver of life. God is telling us in this passage that the same Jesus to whom you fled for refuge from sin and Satan and death and and misery, that Jesus is the only hope worth having. And he is the only hope, the only ground that can sustain our hopes. I'll be honest with you, when Marcus texted me and said he was sick, I was not particularly happy. But this is also one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And so I was particularly pleased that I was going to be able to preach it this morning. Because in verse 19, our preacher uses one of the most beautiful illustrations, I think, that can be found in Scripture. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When we first moved to Austin, uh, just, just over six years ago now, some friends let us use their pontoon boat out on Lake Austin. And we take it out periodically and zoom up and down the river. And then eventually we'd pull over someplace so that the kids could go swimming. And we'd drop the anchor and the boat would hold steady. I don't know if you've been out on Lake Austin, but I can't tell where that anchor went. Water's dirty. We'd be in fairly shallow water, but I still couldn't figure out where the anchor was. But I trusted that the anchor was going to hold us steady because soon that line would get taut and the boat wouldn't move anymore. Where's your anchor? What's holding you steady this morning? Friends, Our preacher tells us that your anchor has been lodged in the Holy of Holies. Not in Jerusalem, not on the Temple Mount, not in some recreated temple that some of our friends think is going to be built someday. It's lodged in the heavenly Holy of Holies. Our friends in this congregation, they would have understood this. Because they knew that the Holy of Holies was the one place that only one man in all the world could go but once a year. And when he passed through the veil, all of Israel would wait in silence to see if God accepted the sacrifice for their sins. They didn't know what was happening back there. I heard a preacher this week say it's kind of like when, you know, before COVID, if you went to the hospital and you sat down with somebody whose loved one was in the emergency room and 
They didn't know what was going on. He said, you know, as a, as a preacher, I often can get places that other people can't. And so I'd just kind of walk confidently through the emergency room doors back to the room to find out what was going on. And then I would come back and tell the family or tell the friends what was happening. Friends, that's exactly what is happening for you and me. Jesus has gone behind the veil. And now he has come back to tell us that God keeps his promises. We have God's promise that because Jesus suffered, died, and was raised from the dead, so also God will ensure that you and I receive everything that he promised to us, his people. Friends, if you put your faith and trust in God, then hell itself can rail against you and you will not be moved because your hope is anchored in the very presence of God. So what does this mean for us today? It means simply that you can trust God. It means that you don't have to know what your future is in order to trust God. It means that you don't have to have everything figured out to trust God. It means that if you have fled for refuge to Jesus Christ, then no matter what else happens in life, you can be assured that his plan and his promise will not fail. And you can follow him. And you can serve him regardless of what happens. Let's pray. Father, allow us to hold on to that line, that rope that binds us to the anchor. May we feel it grow taut, the strength of the hold of Jesus, particularly when the storms of life ravage us, when our own interior life confuses us, when we're not sure where to turn or in whom to hope, fix our eyes on the hope that is ours in Jesus. Lord, may we also testify to one another to be voices of hope in one another's lives. When grief and despair threaten to overwhelm us, when fear and doubt threaten to undermine us, strengthen those around us to testify to your goodness, to tell the stories of their own experience of your faithfulness in their life so that we can be renewed again in our own trust and hope in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.